Well, again, welcome to Door Creek. My name's Mark. If you're a guest here today, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team. And before we get into the message today, let me just say just thanks to those of you who are building into our kids. And so I remember very clearly that I was a five, six-year-old little rascal that went to church one day and the teacher shared the good news and God's love for me in Christ. And I placed my faith in Jesus and my relationship with Christ as a young boy was as real as any relationship in my life. And so the kids aren't just the future of the church. The kids are part of the church today, and God has ordained praise even from the mouth of babes. And so just thanks for loving on our kids and making a difference. And parents, it's our joy here at this place, Door Creek, to come alongside of you as you're pointing your kids to Christ, to know, to love him, to serve him with all that they are and have. And uh, if you haven't connected to a place of ministry, it's a great place to make a difference in someone's life today. And by God's grace, forever, you can use this as an instrument to just find out more and to get connected to DCC Kids. All right, so week three, Romans, good news for all people. So we've been talking about the gospel and the good news, and gospel means good news. And it's the gospel of God that Paul writes to his friends in Rome that he's never met yet. They're scattered across the city, right, in these house churches. And he wants them to know it's the good news about God. It's specifically the good news that not only comes from God, that is about God's son, Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. He says it's not new news. It's the gospel that was promised beforehand a long time ago through the prophets, like in Genesis 3.15. And it's the good news which is for all people, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, right? Slave and free, men and women, older and younger. Good news for all people that declares God's love for us and that directs us how to live a life that loves God back and others well. And so he talks about the power of the gospel in verses 16 and 17. We looked at that last week. These are the theme verses for the book. And it reads like this. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, we may be familiar with that verse, and we go, yeah, that's how it goes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But there is a lot of reasons why he could have been ashamed of the gospel. He talks about that in one of his other letters, two reasons. The idea of a Savior being someone who was crucified for the Jewish mindset whose idea of this Messiah, this anointed king who would come and conquer in those days, conquer Rome and free God's people from tyranny. The idea that the savior of the world would be crucified on a Roman tree, that, that was a stumbling block. That didn't make any sense, can't be. To someone who wasn't a, a Jew, a Gentile, a Greek, a Roman citizen, he was like, just craziness. What are you talking about? It'd be like me telling you that the savior of the world is someone who just got, you know, they, they just faced the electric chair last week. We're going, whoa, whoa, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's crazy. But he says, I'm not ashamed. Why? He's not ashamed of the gospel. Let's go back to that verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Then in verse 17, for in the gospel, in this good news, The righteousness, so righteousness is like God's holiness in action. The righteousness of God is revealed, and it's revealed in Christ, the holiness in action. A righteousness that is ours, that is by faith from first to last. It becomes ours through faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So he's been talking about the good news. 
And he's been telling us that the good news of God's love for us in Christ is the good news that is offered to all people, to Jews and Gentiles. In that day, talking to his churches, that meant if it's to Jews and Gentiles, it means it's for everybody. But the gospel that is offered to all now, he's going to turn the corner and say, is needed by all. We need the good news. And so he's going to move from good news to bad news. Now, a lot of times if someone comes up to us and says, I got good news and I got bad news, what do you want to hear first, right? You hear that? Say that? Usually those are unrelated things, like the good news and the bad news. Well, let me say that Paul's not giving unrelated things in the same way that I'm going to tell you, Lori and I just had the best time in Baltimore visiting our little grandson, oh yeah, and his mother, Laura, our daughter, um, our grandson, Henry, who's a year and a half, and he is the sweetest, smartest, brightest, happiest little guy that there is. Spent five hours at the Baltimore Zoo, the third oldest zoo in the country, with Henry, and it was just great, 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 great. Can't tell you enough great things about Henry. And then we get home, and Laura Texas said, oh, remember how Henry went to the birthday party, and the parents said that all the kids that went to the birthday party are breaking out with hand, foot, and mouth disease? And you remember how Henry was so disappointed he couldn't play with his friends? Well, he can play now because he's got it. And I'm going, I don't know if he got it from the birthday party because I got a picture to prove maybe he got it some other way. <laughs> Isn't he cute? And you know what? You train your kids to not on their toe. It really makes a lot of sense because you're never going to lose that pacifier. <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm going lighthearted here because we're going to go into some tough stuff. I'm just saying. The back half of chapter 1 is hard. The good news is just unbelievable good news. And the bad news is hard news. We're going to run into some stuff that runs contrary to the conventional wisdom and thinking of our day. There's going to be stuff that you hear that you're going to go, I, I don't know if I like this part about God. I don't know if I believe it. But here we're, this is where Paul's going so we can just catch up with the writer here and deal with him on his own terms as God uses Paul to give us his word that's a good word today, even though it's a hard word. That yes, the good news is offered to all, but you're never going to even think you need this good news offer until you come to grips with the bad news. So grab your Bible, and we're going to see how there's a connection here between what he's saying in 18 through 32 with what he said just there in verse 16 and 17, and that is that the salvation that is offered to us from God through Christ is saving us from things like God's holy anger. He's going to talk about his wrath in the first part of the chapter, and it saves us from our unholy living, all right? From the holiness of God's wrath to the unholiness of how we think and often live our lives. So we read about his wrath at the very beginning, and this is a hard thing because we go, God's wrath, that's Old Testament stuff. That's wiping out people. I don't like that God. I, I like this God of love. And Paul's gonna show us that God's wrath isn't like ours and God's wrath isn't disconnected from his love even. So let's read about it. The wrath of God. All right, so I didn't tell you where we're at. So at the end of our Bibles, right, Book of Romans, Letter to the Romans, after Acts, um, if you can find it in the table of contents. The wrath of God, verse 18, is being revealed. 
So it's happening today, present active, right? From heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. How so? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly, not dimly seen, being understood from what has been made, from creation, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. For their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So, the first thing that we learn here is the good news saves us from God's wrath. The bad news is that God doesn't wink at sin. Now, his wrath is not like our anger, which sometimes is correct, but most of the time it's not. In his classic book, J.I. Packer says this. It's the book called Knowing God. God's anger is never unpredictable. Well, we've dealt with people. We've had parents where you just never knew. We've had bosses like that. We may be married to someone like that. Never unpredictable. It's not self-indulgent. It's not about irritability, something that comes from a place of pride or cruelty or a bad temper. God never loses it. In fact, the Bible says he's patient. He's slow to anger. His motivations are pure. His anger and his wrath is radically connected to his righteousness, his justice, which means he does all things right, which means he doesn't wink at sin, but he's committed to dealing with it ultimately to one day ridding this world of evil. So what it is, is God's relentless commitment to deal with evil. It's his right response toward anything that doesn't conform to his character or to his will. He loves us enough that he's going to deal with the things that destroy us. The opposite of love is not hatred. It's indifference. And our God is not indifferent. We see the first use of this word, God's wrath, in Exodus 22. And we read God saying, You shall not mistreat any widow or orphan, the fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. I'll kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. His response here is connected to justice and doing right. And his love for the people that are vulnerable being taken advantage of. So he's slow to anger. And we find out that his anger is revealed now because sin is its own punishment. It's being revealed now because there's consequences for the free choices that God has allowed us to make. He didn't create us as robots. So we can make free choices. And when we're, when we're making choices that, that, that don't conform with his character and don't line up with his will as it's revealed in God's word, then there's consequences. And those consequences hurt. And they destroy things. And they break down things. 
And in that, his wrath is revealed. But it's not just being revealed. It will one day come to fruition when Christ returns and deals with it ultimately. So he talks about that in his letter to Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. And he says this in chapter 4 of his second letter, verse 1. In the presence of God, Timothy, and of Christ... Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. And he goes on to say, preach the word. So Christ is coming back, not as a savior, but as a judge to make all things right and to bring in the promises of the kingdom. No pain, no suffering, no death. This new heaven on earth. So what are we saved from in the gospel? Well, we're saved from God's wrath, his holy, righteous anger, his relentless commitment to deal with sin and pain and the things that bring suffering in this world. I don't know how you make sense of the world when it comes to pain and suffering. You know, I don't know if you start the day, I find myself starting the day and um, I'm not reading a paper, I'm not on my computer, I'm, I'm just using my news app and I'm, I'm doing this, I'm just, I'm thumbing through and I'm seeing these stories and I'm hearing the stories today and, and I don't know how you make sense of how, how we've got to where we are, where someone breaks into a home, the parents are murdered, the 13-year-old daughter thinks she's still missing, right? I don't know how we make sense of that. Someone murdered in our own city, someone was driving down Packer Avenue Friday morning and a car rolls up to him, the window goes down, and a guy's got a gun and starts shooting at him. I don't know how we make sense of the thousands of people who are fleeing their homeland in, in El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala and going up through, through um, Mexico right now and how to make sense of what's our responsibility and how to make sense of why they're fleeing from the, the violence that's going on in those drug-infested countries and the poverty that's going on and just looking for a better life. I, I don't know how we make sense of the statistic that we can hardly get our minds around that deal with murder and, and suicide and, and violent crimes and rape and how you're dealing with the cancer issue that's in your own, in your own family or maybe in your own body or the marriage that's crumbling apart. Well, Paul's going to help us make sense of the world that we live in here. And, and God's plan is to rescue it. But his, his wrath is reminding us that this world is broken and, and we need to know how we got here. And he's going to help us know how we got here. And the first thing he's telling us here is how we got to where we are because the they's of verse 18 through 32 is not just the people who lived a long time ago. Yes, those people. Yes, the people who were living in Paul's day 2,000 years ago. And yes, the people who are living today. How we got to where we are is, he says, they rejected God. They ignored him. He's going out. His anger is going out against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth about God, that he exists, that he is, because if I can say he doesn't exist, then I don't have any responsibility to this one that supposedly has created me. So they suppress the truth. They reject him. They don't honor him. They don't recognize him or give him thanks. But Paul says they're without excuse 
Because the knowledge of God is as clear as the morning sunrise. It's right before their very eyes. But we suppress the truth. So how do we suppress the truth? Well, if someone said, I'm suppressing my emotions, they're holding them down. To suppress the truth is to reject the truth, to resist the truth, to not believe the truth, to not align my life with the truth, that there is a God who created me, and therefore I have a responsibility to live out my life in relationship to this one that I owe my very life to. We suppress that truth. We resist it. We reject it. I don't want to hear it. There's another way we suppress the truth. He says we suppress the truth by our own wickedness. In other words, the Bible says that when God created us, he created us in his own image. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, we're created. And when we don't line up our living with a holy God, his character and his will and his ways in this world, then my life isn't reflecting the truth about who God is and I'm suppressing that truth. Either way, he says, we're without excuse. Why are we without excuse? Because it's right before our very eyes. So look at this picture of the Tetons. I love the Tetons, this massive just mountain range that comes right out of the plains, right? And it's just unbelievable. And for me, when I get in the mountains, the first thing I think about is the majesty of God. And he says in, in verses 18 and following, he says, when, when we see the created order around us, we're seeing the fingerprints of God who's invisible, but we see his eternal power that's eternal power, his divine nature. We can't build mountains like that. This is a God thing. And, and because of that, we don't know everything about God through creation. That's why we have special revelation. That's general revelation that leaves us without excuse. There isn't anybody in any part of the world, whether they've heard the Bible or not, that shouldn't know through creation that there is a God who deserves our honor and gratitude and worship and praise. But we suppress the truth. And it's really easy for people to come up with all kinds of scientific explanations. And by the way, you can believe in the process of evolution and still believe that God is the creator. So I'm not saying that, but there's all kinds of people that are designing ways to think about how we look at the world around us without having God in the, in the context, and the construct of trying to make sense of it. Now, let me just give you some examples of why I think that's a really big stretch because we would never do that if we had the chance tomorrow morning to drive two hours to go to Chicago, to get down on Michigan Avenue, to walk into the Art Institute and meet the curator, are you kidding me, of the Art Institute who takes us through the different halls, who gets us into the beautiful hall with all these impressionistic paintings and tells us about Monet and all the other great impressionistic painters and we say, well, I don't really believe they were painted by people. <laughs> what are you talking about? Or to go to the symphony this week and hear Brahms fifth or whatever it is and go, I, I don't think Brahms or anybody wrote that. I don't think there's a score. I think these just people are pulling off. They're just really talented with their violins and all that stuff and just kind of bringing it together. <laughs> or to sit down, have a great meal, 
all these flavors and colors and textures and courses, and you go, chef? People cooking? I don't believe it. He says, it's evident. But we suppress the truth. Why would we do that? Because there's an implication if God is God and he's created us, there's an implication that we belong to him. And we ought to live in light of that. And the human predicament now is we want to be God. So don't talk to me about another God. I want to be God. I want to be in control. I don't want to be responsible to anybody else. I want to be free to live my life. And so we suppress the truth. We might say that there's a God, but we're not going to live like there's a God. We don't worship him, but we worship our own gods of our own making. And when we refuse to acknowledge God, let alone worship him with grateful hearts, free to choose how we want to live our lives, what we find out, the Bible says, is then we actually make choices that aren't down God's path, and those become deadly choices. That's part of understanding how we got to where we got. We've rejected God, and so it's not surprising that we would reject his truth. So we're rejecting God. We're reinventing him, making him into our own liking, and that just sets up the rejecting of his truth. So he moves on in verse 24 to talk about that very thing. How do we get here? We reject God. How do we get here? We Make a God into our own liking. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's praised forever. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts or desires. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. So the gospel saves us from God's holy, righteous anger, his commitment to deal with everything that doesn't conform with his character and will, the things that are destroying us. He's committed to deal with that. He's also then committed to dealing with that stuff in my life. So it saves us from God's wrath, but it saves us from the consequences of our sin and the wrong thinking that leads to wrong living that is breaking our world apart and our lives apart. The gospel is saving us from that. And so it says that he gives them over. He gave them over to these desires and to these unnatural things where they exchange the glory of God for these idols the natural sexual relation for that which is unnatural. He says, God gave them over. He didn't give up on us, but he's saying, look, you want to live life without me? I'm going to let you do that. I never created you to be a robot. I find no glory that I made you into chatty Cathy dolls, and I just pull the string and you say the words. I've created you to freely express your love for me. And you don't want to do that? I'm going to give you over to that. I'm going to give you over to that. Three times that, that phrase comes. Not giving up, but giving over. 
So the progression goes, how do we get here? Well, we rejected God. How do we get here? We've reinvented. We've redefined God. We've turned, we've turned to other idols. And for us, it's not graven wooden stone idols. We'll talk about some of those in a bit. But there are other things. But just as much go to God's, little g. Third thing, we rewrite the rules. See, when we, when we reject the truth about God, it's really easy to reject God's truth. So that's what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve rejected the truth about God, that he was their loving, good creator that gave them everything to enjoy. But they were tempted to believe that he wasn't good because the enemy said, oh man, you're not gonna die when you eat the fruit. You're gonna be like God. He's holding back. You shouldn't trust him because you can be like God and you should go for it. So when they didn't believe the truth about God, that he was good, it was easy for them to go, well, yeah, we're, we're not, we, we are gonna eat the fruit. Hang it, we're just gonna bag that, that rule. That's a bad rule. So now they, they've rejected the truth about God. They've turned to other gods and now obviously they reject God's truth. And how do we see that happening? There's this rewriting of the rules. They're breaking the rules and they're rewriting the rules. So the first two rules that they broke were the first two rules of the, of the commandment, right? Of the commandments. No other God, no graven images. Check, check, they've broken those rules. Now we see that they're rewriting the rules regarding sex and God's plan, his beautiful plan for sex. He's the author of sex. There's a whole book in the Bible about sex that celebrates sex. Sex is a great gift from God, but he has placed it within the fence line of marriage, a committed marriage, one man, one woman for life. And when Jesus talks about that, he says a man will leave his father and his mother. He's going to be united to his wife, and the two are going to become one flesh, body, mind, soul. Therefore, what God has joined together, not just this couple, but what God has joined together in this one man and this woman, let no one separate. This is God's plan. And when he talks about homosexual sin here, not orientation, when he talks about this behavior, he's giving an example that was predominant in the day in Rome because it was off the charts. It was super common for most of the men to have little boys it was a big deal back then. It's a big deal throughout the course of history. We can read about it going all the way back to places like Sodom in Genesis. And, and he's using it, though, as an example. It's not the one thing we're going to find out. It's like one of 22 things he's talking about. But it'll be just like some of us to go, yeah, that, this is the big bad one. No, actually, it's just one of them. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's not bold and underlined. He spends some time here. He talks about some different things here. But it's important to understand biblically, this is one of four ways that we miss God's best for sex. Homosexual sex, incest is the largest category the Bible talks about. Sex within close family relations. Adultery, and then bestiality. So, what we have here is an example of when we suppress the truth about God and exchange the truth of God for a lie, it's going to be easy to reject God's truth and rewrite the rules. And they're rewriting the rules about sex. So let me say something. After the Holy Spirit, there's nothing more powerful than sex in this universe. After the Holy Spirit, there's nothing more powerful. And God's design is it's to be this beautiful expression of love that unites 
by God's blessing, brings children into this world that furthers his purposes in this world. And it is a powerful thing that the enemy wants to continually twist. And that's all the enemy can do, you guys. The enemy cannot invent evil. He can only twist good. And so he's talking about, this is one of the ways. We break the rules, rewrite the rules. So in our minds, as we read through these other 21 um, sins that just mark off the reason why we're in a bad place because we do these things, I'm just going to tell you the easy thing for us to do is to just check off and go, that's a big, hairy, bad one. I don't do that. And go, oh, man, that's, yeah, I, I probably, maybe I did that, yeah, 10 years ago. And just, we do this. This is all like this. All of this puts us in a place that shows that we're not in a right relationship with God. And the reason is because we've rejected him and turned to other things and we've broken the rules and we're guilty as charged. And so when I read through 29 through 31, just in your mind, just note how you go, in your mind, go, that was a big one. I haven't done that. And, and realize that, that that's, that's not helpful here. Like, this isn't coming like there's red sins and there's green sins or there's big bold letter sins and there's little tiny italic sins. These are all sins, one of them, enough for Jesus to have to die for you and me. So I'm going to read it slowly that we just catch up with it. They become filled with every kind of wickedness. So this is interesting. They're empty of the knowledge of God. They're empty there. But here's what's filled in the place of God in their life. They're filled with every kind of wickedness, evil. So there's kind of general categories here, wickedness, evil. Now it starts getting specific, greed and depravity, this grasping and grabbing for more and our self-centeredness. They are full of envy, right? They I want this stuff, I need this stuff. Murder, the violence, the strife, the deceit, the malice. They are gossips. Whoa, wait, are you kidding me? Gossips got in the list? Yeah, gossips is in the list. Slanders, God-haters, insolent, disrespectful, right? Arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no faithfulness. You can't trust them. No love where they seek the, the, the good and best of others before themselves. There, there's no mercy. All of us this is us, somewhere in this list. And by, you know, without God's mercy and grace in our life, all of these are within our grasp. Don't for a minute think you could never do that. We, we could all do that, and we've done some of all of this. So the tendency, I think, when we're reading the Bible at a place like this and hearing a sermon like this, oh, shoot, man, I wish they were here. You want, I'm going to get that, I'm going to get that message and I'm going to send it to them because they need to hear that. So the Bible's a mirror, shows us who we are. It shows us beautifully who Christ is and through Christ who God is. 
But we tend to kind of read stuff like this, and we, I don't need a mirror right now. We kind of turn the Bible into a pair of binoculars. We're going, yeah, they, oh, yeah, that person, well, they need this. It's good teaching. They need to catch up with it. This is a good word for us. Remember what Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful, it's profitable to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us. So to rebuke us first, hey, you've lost the line, Mark, to correct us, here's how you get back on the, on the, on the wagon, on the line here, and to train us in righteousness. What does that mean? To train us to live rightly before God and with each other so that we're adequately equipped to do every good work that he's called us to. So don't turn the Bible's message and teaching right now into a pair of binoculars, but let the word through the spirit fall on our hearts. Where you go, you know, I wasn't really truthful with my wife when I talked about my business trip or that expense account. Um, I've kind of been insolent and um, I've got these malicious thoughts, evil thoughts, hoping for people's demise. Or I'm really greedy. I don't want to let go of anything that is mine. Just, just let the word bring us to this, this bad news that, that doesn't rest us in the bad news. It then throws us to this, I need Christ. I need the good news. And that's what we have in the gospel. That's what we continue to go back to in this letter. And so one of the beautiful things is Paul understands it's slow for us to come to this understanding. We suppress the truth, not just about God, but about ourselves. So I'm reading this wonderful history called On Desperate Ground. It's the story of the Marine invasion in uh, South Korea and then these UN troops that join the Marines, General Smith leading the charge, MacArthur's kind of over the whole theater operation. There's this guy, General Allman, that's kind of like MacArthur's right-hand man and they've, they've liberated the South and they're going up to clean the North out of communism. And they're going on this death march up in the cold of winter. And Smith, the guy who's leading the Marines, is nervous because he doesn't like the battle plan. He thinks there's a lot of ego driving it. And now he's starting to get reconnaissance and reports that the Chinese actually are going to engage the battle. They've crossed into Korea, and they're going to join the fight. MacArthur hears it. Allman hears it. And they do this. No, 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 no. I don't hear anything. I don't hear any about Chinese. And before you know it, they keep saying, keep going, keep going, Smith. And Smith leads the Marines, 30,000 UN troops, and all of a sudden they're ambushed by 120,000 troops, Chinese. They didn't want to hear the truth. Apparently, as part of the human condition, we don't want to hear the bad news. Don't tell me bad news. You keep the bad news. Tell me the good news. Paul's going to take like a lot of time in this letter to go back. He's, next week we're going to talk about, you know, even religious people need, need the good news. Not just irreligious people. And, and it, I love that when he, when he starts this talking about God's righteous anger against all that doesn't conform to his will, and character, um, and goes through it and talks to us like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That he wraps this section from 117 to 321 in this beautiful promise that God has supplied a righteousness 
from heaven, Jesus Christ, that deals with our predicament, our sin, our sin. And it gets to the very bottom when we look at verse 32, that not only have they rejected God, not only have they reinvented God, not only have they rewritten the rules, but now guess what? They're having a party and they're celebrating and they're promoting those who do what they're doing. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. A culture has descended to a low level when we approve of the things that God says are hurting us, are wrong. That's not just part of our day, guys. That's been going on because it's so easy to go, I know, I feel like that's the, it's the worst it's ever been. Trust me, it's not the worst it's ever been. Go back and read Genesis 6 when everybody always did that which was evil all the time. And God wiped out humanity except for Noah. But th- th- this, is, this, is, this is the pattern. You reject God, you, you replace God, you write your own rules, and you celebrate the things that you know actually are bad, and you promote and high-five those who do the same. That's the bottom, he says. That's the bottom. So where do we go? Well, we go back to the beginning and ask ourselves three questions. Do we believe that God exists? Do we know that he deserves our honor and thanks? And most importantly, does he have that? Are we living our... So here's the deal. You guys, we can actually go, I believe in God. So the philosophers would say, we are theists. We believe in God. But we could functionally be acting and living like atheists. No God. N-O, God. So it's not, do you think there is a God? But do you honor him and how you live your life? Is there gratitude understanding that all that you have and are is from him? Do we have any idols which are taking God's place? And remember, it could be a good thing. It could be a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. And so there's all kinds of things that we place before God. It could be work. That's a good thing. It could be your marriage. It could be your kids. Those are great things. It could be sex. That's a good thing, but not if it's not in the right place. It could be drugs or alcohol or something right now. That's your God. Jesus says, I'm going to give you life that is abundant and free. And when you, you taste the waters of, of life that flow from me, you are never going to be thirsty again. Any other God always leaves us wanting more. And I know there's some people that, that aren't going to believe the bad news because that's the next question. Do we believe the bad news? The reason you're not going to believe the bad news is you go, I'm living the bad news and my life is fine. I know exactly where I am. I'm not going to pretend to be a follower of God, but I'm living my life. I'm breaking those rules that you're talking about. And you know what? I'm good. I like my life. I'm finding a lot of happiness and I don't want to trade up. I'm good. Don't confuse God's patience with you today with his approval and his commitment to deal with all that doesn't conform to his will and character. And ask yourself this question. 
If you're good, are you satisfied? Or do you need more? If you're good and looking for more, can you actually stop? Because maybe you're not actually free to live the life you think you're freely living. Maybe it's the other way around. It's got you. Do we believe the bad news? And if we believe the bad news, then we're set up to believe the good news. Have you done that? Have you, have you believed the good news? That actually Jesus Christ came and there was never an unholy thought. There was never something that he did that didn't conform to God's word and his ways. And that he lived that perfect life fully intending then to be the perfect go-between sacrifice to deal with our unholy thinking and living and to deal with God's wrath. And so at the cross, God's commitment to love us and to rescue us and his commitment to deal with sin are satisfied because in our mind you go, how could those two things keep going? They can keep going because of Christ and they meet at the cross. It's the greatest demonstration of his love and it's where God's justice and mercy meet. And Jesus struggle on Thursday night. Father, if there's another way, take the cross away from me. Had everything to do not with the sufferings of being crucified and asphyxiated on a Roman cross, but dealing with God's wrath where he would become sin on our behalf, take our sin, past, present, future on himself, and with that, God's wrath, so that having taken all of God's wrath, he would direct it away from us that we'd be forgiven and freed and live with him. Do you believe the good news? Have you done that? Have you found life and hope and forgiveness from God through Christ? The Bible says in Romans 5, 9 that Jesus has saved us from God's wrath. We've been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? The verse before that, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The bad news just reminds us that we need a savior. And as we live in a world that's full of bad news, now we have a better understanding how we got here, right? Rejecting God, rejecting his ways. But we got a pathway too. Because you know what the church has done sometimes? The church's response to declining culture has been, you gotta live like a Christian. Don't expect someone who's a, not a Christian to live like a Christian. It's hard enough for a Christian to live like a Christian. Right? The answer for the world is not to live a more moral life. The answer for our world is Jesus Christ. The answer for your world is Jesus Christ. It's not to do better, to work harder. It's to remember that our trust is in the one who's done it all for us and his spirit in us gives us new desires to live for God, to honor him, gives us new power to actually be able to do that, gives us the humility to say, I totally messed up and God help me to, to make it right now and get back in line with you and others. This world needs a savior. But until we hear the bad news, why, why in the world? Are you kidding me? 
I'm great. I got a lot of money in my 401, 403, whatever you want to call it. I'm good. I'm healthy. I got the bride of my life. I got these beautiful kids. I don't need anything. The Bible says we need Christ. Every day, every step of the way, every inch of the way, today. Don't go to sleep today without knowing how much God loves you. And they didn't just bring bad news. Christ came in not to condemn the world, but to save the world. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord, we don't understand why you keep pursuing us patiently and with your mercy when we keep fumbling through this world, rejecting you and setting up these just puny little gods that can't deliver. We don't understand your patience when with eyes sometimes wide open, we just, we just kind of flip you off and thumb our nose at you and go, who cares? We're just going to do what we want to do. And we can't catch up with that your answer to this was that your perfect son would suffer the horrors of the cross, which was more than the sufferings of crucifixion. We, we, we can't imagine that before the world even began, that Jesus and you and the Holy Spirit decided that he would come, the Lamb of God, to save us from ourselves. And so, Lord, help us to come to grips with who you are, to what you're doing, to who we are and what we've been doing, and help us to live right with you in a world that desperately needs you. Thank you for the good news, your Son, our Savior. In his name we pray.